Hello, and welcome to the Aguilar Conversations, a global perspective. I'm Tony Aguilar. On today's podcast, as the world's major powers compete for influence, is the continent of Africa in danger of facing a new form of colonialism? I will be speaking with Dr. Zachariah Mampili, the Marx Endowed Chair of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College and co-founder of the Program on African Social Research. He is the author of several books, and his latest book is Africa Uprising, Popular Protest and Political Change. Uh, Dr. Mampili, thank you for joining me today. It's wonderful to be here, Tony. Let me ask you this. As Africa has gone through various phases since the 19th century, you had the Berlin Conference, which balkanized Africa into uh, its present boundaries. Then it had a phase of independence. And then you had a phase which was over overlapping of Pan-Africanism. Where do you see the continent of Africa today? Uh, that's certainly a, a broad question, but uh, I'll try to offer some you know, general overview. Um, you know, Africa is a very diverse place, 54 countries, uh, you know, some very strong economic growth in places like Nigeria, South Africa, um, Mozambique, Botswana, um, but obviously other countries that have been uh, faced with protracted crises like the Democratic Republic of Congo or the Central African Republic. Uh, so you have a very diversified uh, picture in terms of how uh, things are moving at this current conjecture of history. Uh, you know, if we look back, say, to the 80s and 90s, when many of our perceptions of Africa were, were shaped uh, as a continent defined by poverty and, and war, um, that's certainly no longer the case today. Uh, you know, conflict has been reduced considerably outside of, you know, some very prominent examples like Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, but most African countries are, are experiencing prolonged periods of stability. And overall, the, the economic picture on the continent has been uh, fairly strong. Uh, most African economies have grown by over 3% since the mid-1990s. Uh, and you see some economies like that in Tanzania uh, that have really taken off over the past decade or so. So it's a, it's a pretty diversified picture with some countries doing pretty well in terms of political stability and economic growth, and others continuing to be mired um, in chronic kind of conflict and, and dysfunction. It is projected in some circles that African nations will grow in terms of their GEP, that their growth will outstrip much of the world. It's going to grow at about perhaps 4%, which is which is a good sign. On the other hand, the Geneva Academy has reported that there's at least 35 conflicts within Africa. Now, it would be unfair to say that conflicts are just germane to Africa because if you think about Europe, which had multitude of conflicts for hundreds of years and was the site of two world wars. So, but how is that affecting those conflicts? How is that affecting Africa as a continent, even as you say, it's 54 different nations, but they are looking to act in a unified manner, perhaps through African Union and the like. How is it affecting how they get to do that? Yeah, well, so, you know, at a very general level, we know that conflicts have a, a dramatic impact on economic development. Um, you know, we know that civil wars and interstate wars, uh, which are rare in the African context, uh, but civil wars in particular, you know, have a depressive impact on GDP growth, uh, probably around 1% annually. So any amount of uh, political instability is a, a negative in terms of uh, Africa's economic potential. Um you know, I think there's other kind of dimensions to how we might want to think about it. And that is that many of the conflicts that are documented are, are relatively remote. 
take place in more peripheral parts of these countries and are largely not uh, determining the trajectory of these countries. Now, that being said, uh, there are certain conflicts, the, the conflict in Sudan, uh, which just started about uh, a little over a month ago now, um, you know, is a, is a huge war um, and is likely to have huge impacts not only on the country of Sudan, uh, but throughout the Horn of Africa more broadly. You know, we're seeing, you know, a number of other countries being sort of drawn into the fighting in Sudan, uh, most directly the neighboring countries of Ethiopia, Egypt, um, you know, South Sudan, Chad, uh, and others um, are definitely being affected by the war in Sudan. And, and that could, you know, um, have much more dramatic impacts, not only for Sudan, but again, for the larger uh, Horn of Africa region. So, you know, war remains a, a very detrimental force uh, on the African continent. Um, even places like Tanzania that have remained relatively stable, um, you know, are, are sort of impacted by these sort of larger regional trends. Uh, and so it is something that will require continued attention, both from national governments, as well as regional and international organizations like the African Union and the United Nations. Now, one of the issues or one of the projected population uh, demographic or change in, in demographics is that by 2050, 40% of the world's youth is going to be in Africa which has to be seen as a great opportunity for for businesses, for various corporations, and for various nations. How do you see that? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Africa's greatest resource has always been its people, um, and its young people in particular. We see across the continent that African countries are extraordinarily young. You know, Africa is the youngest continent by far. Um, average African is under the age of 20. Um, which is pretty remarkable compared to, say, the United States, where the average American is closer to 40 years old. So it's a it's a huge advantage um, for a whole variety of reasons, economic forces being one of them, but also I think the, the political implications of having such a young population are increasingly uh, manifesting across different African countries. So we've seen, you know, one of the interesting facts about Africa is that Africa also has uh, the largest age gap between its populations and its rulers. Uh, currently, the average age of an African ruler is 63 years old, which in comparison to a population of around 20 years old is 43 years. And to give you a sense of how vast that age gap is, you know, that's roughly the same age gap between President Biden and the American population. Um, and Biden, of course, is the oldest president in American history. Um, so you see that, you know, there is this, uh, I think, real problem uh, generationally between, you know, who is controlling African countries uh, and who you know the average African is, which is a young person, and young people are are largely excluded from participating meaningfully in the larger political and economic life of most African countries. In your book, Africa Uprising, you do talk about protests and how people on the ground level are protesting in a very positive way because they want to see change in their various nations. Um, how are young people leading that that protest to make sure? that leadership, even if there's an age gap, that they understand what the needs of the states or the various states happens to be? So that's a you know somewhat complicated story, but uh, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, you know, so basically, you know, until the 1980s and 90s, uh, most African countries were autocratic. Uh, only about three African countries held regular elections until the 1990s. So the vast majority, more than 50, uh, were under some form of authoritarian or one-party rule. And in the 1990s, as a result of the debt crises that affected many African countries, 
um, they were forced to implement democratic reforms. Uh, this was generally a, a good thing, but unfortunately, the process of democratization was hijacked by political and economic elites across Africa. And so what you see is that you know, both uh, ruling parties and opposition parties uh, are largely disconnected from the majority of their own societies. Uh, you know, they exist in these very sort of patronage-oriented relationships with, the, with their populations. Uh, there's a huge amount of corruption. Um, elites, political elites in particular, are very involved in economic activity, and there's all sorts of corruption associated with much of the economic growth that has unfolded across Africa. And the net picture, as I mentioned, is that young people are, are largely excluded from participating, uh, are benefiting from much of the economic growth uh, that has unfolded across Africa over the past uh, three decades now. Uh, and so you see that there's been a huge explosion um, of the informal economy in African cities. If you've ever been to any of the major African cities, uh, you can't help but notice all the young people who are you know, trying to sell cheap Chinese products on the side of the road, uh, are engaging in other, you know, uh, subsistence activities in the informal economy. Uh, and so I think, you know, this has fueled a, a tremendous amount of resentment and anger amongst young people. Many of these young people actually do have educations. Uh, there's a huge underemployment and unemployment crises across many African countries, including places like South Africa, where more than 25% of the population is unemployed. Um, something like 50% of the population is underemployed. So, you know, I think these are uh, larger structural forces uh, that are really generating a lot of resentment that then is is transformed or translated into people taking to the streets to protest their their daily living conditions. Um, and I think it's been a you know a real challenge uh, for some of these social movements that have emerged uh, to really impact the longer term trajectory of these societies. And so. What you see is a, a huge sense of disconnection uh, between the majority of these populations and the political and economic elites who control their countries. Let me, let me ask you this. Uh, in terms of the protests, particularly of young people, and as some of the governments look to curtail uh, the protests, some of the nations have called in people like Russia, the Wagner Group, how is that affecting what's going on? I mean, Vag, uh, the, the Wagner Group is increasing its influence. Places like Mali, uh, we raised the issue of Sudan, where uh, Wagner Group is suspected of being on the side of, of the rebels. So how does that affect what's going on in Africa right now? Yeah, so I mean, I think, as you know, since the 19th century, uh, African countries have been uh, subjected to, to the meddling of, of outsiders, uh, Europeans, Americans, and increasingly now people like Russia and, and uh, people from Asian countries in particular. Uh, and that has remained true even as the, the, the actors involved uh, continue to uh, change. Right. So uh, increasingly now we are seeing Asian countries, um, Gulf countries, playing a, a more direct role uh, in the internal politics of African societies. Uh, and, you know, as it was under European uh, colonialism in the 19th century, uh, this type of uh, external meddling in Africa's domestic affairs uh, is often detrimental to the interests of ordinary people. Right? Um, so if you look at, in particular, political and economic elites in many of these countries, they, they get their, their power uh, from their relationships with external actors, whether that be through economic investments uh, that really are directed uh, towards elites in these countries, primarily for extractive purposes, 
or uh, to shore up their military capacity. The United States engages in a huge amount of training uh, of African militaries, African police to repress protesters. Similarly, groups like the Wagner Group, as you mentioned, are playing a role as mercenaries uh, that shore up the capacity of African armies. And all of this is usually directed against their own people in ways that I think are, are you know, the source of a lot of the resentment uh, by ordinary Africans against their governments. So given that, and if you add in, let's say, the China, which has been very influential within with their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, they're in many countries, which has made a lot of countries in Africa become debtor countries. Uh, some have defaulted on their debt. Not only are they utilizing economic power, but they're using some of their soft power, the increasing of Confucius centers around Africa and the like. And it does seem as though with the influence of nations like China, United States, and Russia, that African nations are or their leaders are giving up a lot of power to outside forces again. Is that how you see it, or do you see it in a different way? Well, I, I think generally I agree with you, but I think what I would distinguish between is, you know, which Africans are we speaking of, right? Um, because what we have seen is that there has been a, a tremendous growth uh, uh, in inequality across the continent, right? So as I mentioned, as we've been discussing, Africa has been growing at a tremendous rate since the, the 1990s. It's projected to continue growing around 3, 4, three to 4% annually. Uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and these are really extraordinary uh, rates of growth. But where is all this money going? Right? And so the other factor that we need to pay attention to um, is the rate of inequality. And by that measure, uh, Africa is now becoming one of the most unequal places in the world. Uh, you know, nine, of the ten, nine of the 12 most unequal countries in the world are African. Uh, and that includes very wealthy countries like South Africa and Botswana, but also very poor countries like the Central African Republic. And this wasn't the case in the 1990s, right? So it was a time in which most African countries were much poorer, but more equal. And what we've seen is that most of the growth that has been unfolding across African economies since the 1990s has not been spread widely amongst the population, but has rather been captured uh, by very narrow elites uh, across African countries, right? So we've all heard about the Nigerian billionaires buying you know, $100 million properties uh, on 57th Street here in Manhattan, um, and I think that's a, a reflection of the fact that increasingly we are seeing this global, globalized African elite uh, who have resources on a you know, world historic scale, uh, who buy homes in places like Dubai, Europe, and here in New York City. Um, and they have benefited tremendously from this external meddling uh, into African uh, domestic issues. So, you know, I think that's the, the dynamic that we need to be paying attention to. It's not that these countries are, are, are poor. It's that the, the wealth is not distributed uh, among, amongst the population in any sort of equitable manner. And given that, with the inequality of wealth and the like, that bodes for more disruption and more protests and the like, which on the other hand means that there will be more external factors coming in to protect the elites. So one of the questions I want to ask is um, PLO Lumumba, who is very well known throughout Africa, he had made the statement that if Africa stays the same, that within 25 years it will be recolonized by the outside world. Is that an assessment that you agree with as you have observed Africa? I know you spent some time in, in Tanzania. 
Is that something that you agree with? Well, I think that, you know, uh, the idea of colonization evokes uh, a kind of 19th century European model of colonialism. Um, yeah, it won't look the same as it did. Won't look the same. And I, I think the that's, Berlin that's Conference. An distinction, yes, right? but, but I think one thing that is consistent, you know, from the 19th century version of colonialism to the 21st century, uh, is that it always relied on internal mediators. Right? So if we go back to the 19th century, there always were, you know, local chiefs, uh, local rulers uh, who made alignments with the uh, European colonial powers. Uh, and that was essential for the, the the expansion of European colonialism across the continent. And I think, you know, that part of it, um, you know, it's not going to look like uh, traditional 19th century set, settler colonialism. You probably won't see a reemergence of uh, race-based apartheid systems as, as we saw in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, but in terms of class, I think that's probably the, the dimension that, that, that is most relevant going forward. So what we're likely to see, um, and we already have seen, if you go in any African cities, I was just in Kinshasa in April, um, you know, and it's, it's one of the poorest cities in Africa in terms of the sheer numbers of poor people, but there's also these enclaves of tremendous wealth that exist uh, even within a, a, a city like Kinshasa, right? And in those spaces, it's not necessarily white faces or Asian faces, it's African faces. Um, but they've carved out, um, you know, these kind of fortress-esque neighborhoods, uh, even amongst uh, extraordinary poverty, uh, where they live inside these compounds um, at a level that is comparable to, say, life in the United States. And so I think that's likely what we'll see going forward, one uh, a situation in which colonialism continues to rely on, on, on local elites, uh, and that instead of white faces or Asian faces kind of settling in these countries, that it's going to be Africans who, who engage in these forms of exploitation uh, of the African continent itself. So if if Lumumba is correct in his assessment, how do you avoid that? Uh, I read an article by Howard French in a foreign policy magazine. He had made the statement that perhaps the continent needs to speak with fewer voices as opposed to 54 disparate voices. Now, that sounds easier said than done, but theoretically, is that, a, is that accurate? Or do you agree with that? Well, I think that, you know, we should talk about Pan-Africanism and, and what it looks like today, because I think that's what uh, French is, is referring to, right? Mm -hmm. This uh, longstanding dream uh, amongst African rulers to, to create a single entity comparable to the European Union where African countries could speak on the global stage with a unified voice uh, rather than, uh, you know, a situation in which we have 54 nation states all kind of making their own claims um, uh, at the international level. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical about that version of top-down Pan-Africanism. Um, what we've seen going back to the 1970s uh, is that despite its origins as a, a very sort of revolutionary project, uh, Pan-Africanism has been co-opted by political elites um, in Africa, um, and it's no longer as sort of welcoming of, of ordinary people within its ranks. Now, there are other forms of Pan-Africanism that I think are hugely important. Um, you know, you see, especially in the cultural domain, uh, a really strong desire amongst young people to forge connections across borders uh, in very meaningful ways. And, and I'm happy to talk more about, you know, what it looks like uh, from the perspective of youth movements who are trying to build these sort of Pan-African networks uh, on the continent. But in terms of the formal institutions of Pan-Africanism, most directly the African Union, 
um, you know, that remains very much a, a, a project that is uh, top down, that is designed around protecting the interests of government, um, that rarely tries to, you know, enforce its own standards uh, around democracy in terms of enforcing, you know, sanctions or boycotts against governments that violate those norms. Um, you know, and, and they've not been particularly responsive to to government to to, to ordinary people uh, when governments have cracked down on popular movements, um, when governments have opened fire on their own peoples. You almost never hear a, a peep from African leaders uh, or the AU, um, you know, regarding support for popular movements for democracy and, and good governance. And so, uh, I think I'm I'm wary, right? Because I think the voice we might hear uh, if they were to have a unified. Uh, voice in international affairs might be highly authoritarian, might be highly top-down, might be highly uh, favorable to existing elites rather than one that genuinely champions the interests of ordinary Africans. Well, say more about the youth movement aspect of Pan-Africanism. How do you think that would play out? And can they do it without external factors such as the United States or China, or Russia, or France, for example. Yeah, I think there there, there are very interesting attempts. You know, so I, in 2018, I, I participated in a, a gathering in Dakar, Senegal, uh, organized by something called the Afriki Network, um, and that is a network of youth movements, um, most prominently movements like Lucha and the Democratic Republic of Congo or Yanomar in Senegal, uh, and they brought together people from young people from 40 different African countries to meet over four days. Uh, to talk about, you know, kind of the future of social movements in Africa. And that network continues to exist today, and they continue to foster these kind of, um, you know, relationships. And I, I think what's important to to remember here is if we look at the origins of Pan-Africanism, uh, it looked much more similar to the Afriki network uh, than it does to the African Union, right? I mean, you know, we now think of people like Lumumba, um, Patrice Lumumba, that is, uh, or Kwame Nkrumah, and, and we think of them as kind of these great statesmen. Um, but we have to remember that they began their careers as, as political activists, as teachers, um, as ordinary people who were challenging these unjust colonial regimes that had been exploiting their countries. Uh, and they found a lot of support by traversing these networks of activists uh, that were organized under the rubric of Pan-Africanism. Um, and so to me, you know, I think uh, what gives me the most optimism about the future of Africa is precisely the rediscovery uh, of this kind of Pan-African spirit, a bottom-up Pan-African spirit amongst youth movements in particular that are looking around and looking outside of their borders and saying, you know, we actually share a lot more in common uh, than our own you know, political elites want us to, to, to believe, right? And they are trying to forge relationships, not only within Africa, but also within organizations in the diaspora. So some of these groups have been working with an organization in, in Atlanta called Project South, um, sending delegations to attend meetings that Project South organizes and embedding some of their activists in, 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 in these diasporic organizations as well. So to me, that's, you know, um, you know, it is also true that they have not been able to uh, achieve some of the more ambitious objectives. Um, but I think that kind of youthful energy um, going into these social movements is is a, a really positive development um, when we think about what, uh, what, what young people could be doing instead, right? such as joining an insurgency. Let me ask you about the, the present leadership, some of them anyway. I was at a conference and they were talking about how sometimes the leaders of these nations 
are more afraid of the external factors than they are of their own people. Because a lot of them remember the history of Patrice Lumumba. They remember that when he went against Belgium and the United States and was going closer to Russia, they tortured him, they dissolved his body in acid. They remember that history and that sometimes there's a fear more of outside players than they are of their own populations. How accurate is that or is that not accurate? Well, I think there's obviously strong historical reasons, as you've uh, uh, you know, uh, suggested, as to why African leaders should be wary of external meddling in their domestic politics. Um, but I think that that fear is perhaps overblown. Um, and not, not, I don't mean in a general sense, I mean in a specific sense. If you look at who actually has power in African countries today, there are no left-wing leaders. I mean, there is no successor of Patrice Lumumba um, ruling the Congo today. There is no successor of Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. There is no successor of Julius Nyerere in Tanzania. Um, what we have instead are, are mostly kind of neoliberal uh, political elites who are quite happy to sell their national natural resources uh, to uh, international investors. Um, so we're not seeing uh, the kind of, uh, you know, nationalist, pan-Africanist, um, you know, uh, leftist leadership in Africa uh, that we once had in the 1960s. And that really continued till the 1980s. Uh, until the by the 1990s, what we instead have uh, you know, are these uh, international uh, technocrats uh, who are quite happy to cozy up to international institutions, who are quite happy to, you know, seek the support of China or the United States and don't really try to espouse uh, any kind of pro-people agenda uh, that we might have associated with, you know, say the pan-African leaders of the 1960s and 70s. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary if you compare um, African countries to Latin American countries. Right? Latin American countries will often have leftist leaders coming to power who once in power will engage in broad redistributive programs. So, you know, even as they kind of lose power every once in a while, people like Lula in Brazil are able to come to power and are able to engage in meaningful redistribution of a country like Brazil's tremendous economic wealth uh, in ways that directly affect poor Brazilians. We know this, we can document it. You don't see that anywhere in Africa. None of the African leaders are talking about nationalizing industries. None of them are talking about uh, engaging in broad welfare programs. Um, you know, and I think that's a, a really remarkable um, outcome. Now, is that because they're afraid of offending outside sources? Because it's not that they could not be corrupt and still distribute. Yeah. I mean, we've seen examples of that ac across the, uh, history as well. So what what is it that prohibits them from distributing wealth amongst the people? You know, it's a, it's a great question. My, my answer would be that it relates to the nature of democratization in the 1990s. So you know, one of the interesting things, for example, if you look at South Africa, right? Um, in, in the 90s, early 90s, when South Africa became black majority ruled and overturned apartheid, uh, you know, one of the parties that was involved with the, the ANC government that came to power was the Communist Party of South Africa. Um, and you might think that, you know, if there's any case for government sanctioned redistribution of economic resources, uh, South Africa, which remains one of the most racially unequal societies in the history of the world, 
uh, would be fertile grounds for such a program. I, mean, I think that you know across South Africa, across Africa, and probably across the world, uh, nobody would have blinked uh, if the ANC government in the 90s had said, you know what, uh, in order to remedy uh, over 100 years of, of racial discrimination and brutality, uh, we are going to engage in a, a, a redistribution project. Right? We are going to uh, accumulate lands and, and businesses owned by the white minority and ensure that they are uh, more inclusive and, and beneficial to the black majority. Uh, and that did not happen. Right? Um, but it's, it but there happen. was some talk about them doing that back then, yeah. but there was a lot of pushback from there the was. West. And I think that's a that's why I think it's a crucial moment, right? Because that pushback didn't just happen in South Africa; it happened across the African right. continent. And so, if you look in the '80s and '90s, when you actually had these left-leaning parties that were active in politics, you know, by and large, they were disciplined. Um, their leaders were arrested, killed, uh, often with the full, you know, uh, participation of the former colonial powers in Europe or the United States, right? So that we don't really have a, too enough. Um, you know, uh, opposition voices calling for these kinds of broad redistributive programs. I mean, there is no African Lula. Um, And that, I think, is a very damning uh, outcome when you consider the history of progressive African leaders that that dominated uh, the continent's politics through the 1960s and 1970s. Let me me ask you this. As the powers compete for influence, how do you analyze what's happening with China, Russia, and the United States, which seems to be trying to figure something out when it comes to to Africa. How do you analyze these three nations being involved in the internal affairs of Africa right now, particularly China, which seems to have a growing and increasing influence? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the starting point for any conversation is to recognize that Asia is now a larger trading partner with African countries than the EU, the United, European Union or the United States, which have historically been the dominant trading partners with African countries. Uh, so that's a pretty major uh, uh, transformation uh, to see how quickly Asian countries have risen. And by Asia here, I'm not only referring to China. You know, I'm also talking about countries like India, Malaysia, Turkey. Uh, The Gulf countries, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and others have become huge players, um, both in the economics and politics of most African countries. And so we are seeing a a, fairly historic uh, shift away from the West towards the East. And I think it's durable, and I think it's going to only, um, uh, the gap between Asia and the West is only going to increase in terms of their influence on the African continent. Now, what role does that leave for the United States? I mean, I think, you know, here is a, a really missed opportunity. If we look at, you know, U.S. policy in Africa over, say, the past two decades, um, you know, our focus has primarily been about economic uh, objectives or security objectives. Um, you know, if you look across Africa, the United States has a very heavy military presence across the continent. Uh, there has been an expansion of, of U.S. support for African militaries. Um, and I think this has been a, you know, um, a real kind of own goal, as it were, uh, in terms of U.S.-Africa policy. And I think that, you know, had we put forth a, a different kind of model, uh, one that didn't turn Africa into a, an extension of the war on terror, uh, but instead really took seriously some of the values that we espouse, like support for our democracy, um, we might have had a chance to, to compete with the Chinese um, and, and other Asian countries. 
But, you know, with, a, with the lack of attention that the U.S. government has bestowed upon African countries over the past two decades, it's not surprising to me that increasingly African governments have turned towards Asia um, as, a, as their primary, you know, uh, donor, primary trading partners, primary uh, source of military weaponry and, and training. Um, and I think ultimately that has strengthened African governments, uh, even as it has been counterproductive for African societies. President Biden met with many of the leaders of the African Union. And Vice President Harris went to Africa recently. President Biden might be going there soon. So uh, Vice President Harris's trip might be a prerequisite to the president going. Um, What do you think it will result in? Because as you said, they are, they're leery of the United States right now, and they're looking more towards China and Asian nations, as, as you pointed out. So what do you think a President Biden could do now, or is it too late? Because China in particular, for example, their foreign minister for the last 30 years in the row, their first foreign visit would always be a nation in Africa for the last 30 years. Yeah. And the United States is seems as though they're just trying to figure something out that they're really confused as to how to handle the continent of Africa. So what would you say to President Biden that he needs to do? Well, um, you know, I think a a starting point is to recognize that, you know, fundamentally the U.S. has a variety of different objectives when it comes to Africa. Um, You know, we obviously have strategic interests. Uh, Africa is important for us in terms of uh, the larger war on terror and other kinds of security objectives that we have defined. Um, but I think, as I mentioned, is, you know, that those kind of security concerns have come to dominate almost all our other interests uh, on, in terms of our Africa policy. And I think it's been quite counterproductive for um, U.S. interests long term. You know, I, in, a, in a piece I wrote for dissent uh, at the beginning of the Biden administration, what I called for was a, a kind of return uh, to a value driven policy towards Africa. And I think on one level, you know, you could conceive that as as being perhaps a a naive or optimistic account uh, if you think that states only behave in their in their immediate interests. But what I would argue is that, you know, that sort of real politic version where we thought that our only interest in Africa should be security first, economic second and anything else third uh, has failed. Right? Because the Chinese are better at the economics, the, you know, there are other countries like the Gulf countries which are better at the security side. Um, and you know, ultimately, the United States has, has appeared to be kind of a fumbling um, you know, uh, actor that is just watching all this historic goodwill uh, dissipate. Right? If we think about African societies, you know, um, outside of the kind of political relationships that we have, Africans are, are, have very warm relations towards the West and to the United States in particular. There are long diasporic ties between the United States and Africa. We have a huge population of African immigrants coming into the United States. Um, they are a population that you know continues to hold the United States in, in, in considerable uh, regard. And we've never really tried to engage with them uh, and craft a, a foreign policy that actually works uh, in their interests, right? Uh, and I think that would be a good starting point. I mean, look at what we did in Sudan uh, in the face of, you know, the most recent fighting. Um, you had all of these American citizens whose passports were at 
the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum, and those passports were simply destroyed by the embassy staff. Um, it's really astonishing that that's how we treated American citizens. Um, you know, the basic response of the Biden administration was, you're on your own. Right? You, you chose, we warned you not to go to Sudan. You chose to go anyways, so now you figure it out. Uh, and that's an astonishing, I would say, racist uh, attitude that we took towards our own populations, but one that reflects uh, the kind of larger disinterest and, and, and uh, uh, I'd say, contempt that the U.S. foreign policy establishment continues to hold towards Africa. And ultimately, I think it's uh, extremely short-sighted. Let me ask you this in a few minutes we have remaining. There's always been in the United States, as you were talking about before, an affinity particularly between the black community and the continent of Africa. How would you best inform, let's say, the community in the United States of how to either influence an administration in terms of how they're going to deal with Africa? During the days of apartheid in South Africa, the black community was very uh, active in yeah. that that effort to end apartheid. How would you say the black community should act today in terms of affecting policy towards uh, the continent of Africa? Well, if you know, uh, uh, because it's not on anyone's agenda uh, right now. It's not. I think that it's a real loss, right? I think that if we look back at the history of African American support. Uh, for African independence struggles, for the anti-apartheid struggle, as you mentioned. Um, it is considerable, it is sustained, it was meaningful, it had a direct impact on shaping U.S. policy towards these countries, uh, and it was a high point of diasporic solidarity. Right? Um, and, I, and, I, and I wish for those days to return. I mean, I think um, there is a huge uh, scope for engagement. I, I think there are many people who are, uh, are trying to, to do this kind of work. I already mentioned Project South. Um, which is a predominantly black organization in Atlanta that has done a lot of outreach and support towards these social movements. Um, but ultimately, I, yeah, I, I think that there is a, a larger disconnect um, in terms of you know, the black community in the United States taking ownership over Africa policy, uh, of mounting critiques against much of what the U.S. has been doing uh, in African countries, of, of championing uh, ordinary people, uh, social movements, uh, as being kind of the target and recipient of U.S. largesse. Um, you know, I wish, you know, we had a, a black president here in the United States. Um, people were very excited. And Obama, you know, ultimately did very little for the continent. Um, George Bush probably did more to to help ordinary Africans than Barack Obama did. I think that was a, a huge disappointment. So I think there's a, a huge space and a, and a long history of engagement that, that could be resurrected. Uh, if there was a way to, to uh, you know, reignite, I think, that, that passion uh, that once defined the relationship between uh, Africans and, and people here in the, in the United States, uh, in the Black diaspora, that, that, that would have really uh, important impacts um, on the nature of U.S. policy towards Africa. And I, and I can't say what would get us back to that point. One thing we did not discuss is the nation of Congo and the issue of cobalt. And that whole issue there, which in many respects, it, is kind, it kind of defines how the world sees Africa, simply a source of resources. Mm -hmm. And the book that's out now, uh, Cobalt Red, really talks about what's going on with Congo 
in terms of how people, because they're so poor, they're digging up uh, cobalt with their hands instead of with machines. And most of that is going to, to China. So I guess my question is, we talked about security and United States seeing Africa as a sense of security, an extension of its own national security. But how do you also get to move away from the notion of Africa simply being a center of natural resources and we're going to exploit everything we they have and let whatever the government does, let them do it. But their role is to protect corporate interests of the various nations. How do we move off of that? Well, you know, I think that it's very important when we talk about Africa, when we think about Africa, is to do precisely what you're doing, which is to center Africa into larger conversations affecting the global community, right? So whether we're talking about capitalism, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about immigration, um, whether we're talking about demographics, uh, you know, you, we can't have these conversations without thinking about Africa. Um, and I think that too often the way we in the West approach the continent is, is a site of charity, right? It's, it's not a relevant place. It's not a meaningful place. Um, you know, it's, some, it's a place that we have to deal with because we are uh, morally obligated to engage with the continent. And I think that's a really outdated um, and, and, you know, morally suspect approach to how we should uh, think about our relations uh, with African countries. Uh, as you point out, you know, uh, uh, Congo's resources, and not just Congo, but all African countries' resources, uh, really underpin the, the global economy. Um, and it's done in a way that is highly extractive and highly exploitative. And it's bad not only for Africans, as we've been discussing, but also for the international community, right? If we cut down the, the Congo forests uh, in search of these sort of highly extractive, uh, uh, in support of these highly extractive industries, uh, the consequences are great. It doesn't matter that you know, these materials are being used uh, to build electric cars. Uh, you know, the, the Congo forest is, is you know, part of the lungs of the planet. Uh, and we should care about it because we care about climate change. Um, we should care about working conditions for Congolese youth uh, in these you know, unregulated mining sectors um, because we are concerned about you know, black lives generally. Um, these, are, these are not issues that are specific to Congo. They are, you know, I think one of the most interesting dynamics is, is kind of the centrality of African economies to the functioning of global capitalism. Uh, and I think by reconnecting those conversations, we might be able to start making some progress. Dr. Zachariah Bampili, the Marx Endowed Chair of Public and International Affairs of Baruch College, has been our guest. And I want to thank him for his time and insights today on this issue. And we hope to see you again real soon. And thank you for listening and joining us again next week as we discuss another issue of global importance here on the Aguilar Conversations, A Global Perspective.